Hi, I'm Alice Bellet. And I'm Sam Bellet and Crimes. In this episode of Welcome, I take us on an exploration of the Indigenous literary scene here in Australia as I talk with poets Alison Whitaker and Laniuk. And they share some of their work with us too, which is really cool. So, Alice, tell us a bit more. Why did you choose to look at poetry for your episode in our show? Uh, It's related to the research of my PhD. I'm really interested in the work being done in poetry as a means of resisting a narrative that's been ongoing for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people since colonisation. You mean narratives like that Indigenous people are somehow backward and that kind of colonial narrative? Yeah. There's a prevalent attitude and set of assumptions about who Indigenous people are in this country and what we're about. There's this idea that there was this flat-out genocide and that Indigenous people are extinct along with our cultural practices and expressions. These ideas really inform the collective consciousness in Australia and they've pushed a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices to the margins. Yeah, we really do tend to hear from a few of the same voices over and over. And even they sometimes push that same narrative about Indigenous suffering and denigration. So you're showing us a different narrative here, right? One that's important for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people alike? Yeah, that's right. There has, of course, been suffering and denigration, but that's not the whole story. We're artists too, among other things. I think poetry specifically has a unique method of speaking back to the constraints faced by our ancestors. And also responding to the way that those legacies manifest themselves in the present day. Right. Black poetry isn't limited to only addressing these legacies and their current manifestations though. And that's important to note. Yeah, totally. Uh, As well as resistance, each poet is speaking from a lifetime of individual experiences. Channeling those creatively is like asserting a sovereignty over oneself too. And solidarity with each other as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. You'll notice when you listen to this episode that we're really talking to each other as Aboriginal people and also as writers, and it's meant to be that way. We explain what that means a bit more in our conversation. Indigenous listeners, therefore, will understand the nuance there, and we hope that non-Indigenous listeners will feel like they're getting a little bit of a privileged insight into the spaces that we're making for ourselves, and also the conversations that we're having with one another in general, and also through art. The big way I see poetry, in particular Black poetry, resisting that gaze is through, like, playing with legibility so legibility is kind of like who understands what and do they understand it in the way that the author is kind of putting forward so indigenous poets can and I'm kind of speaking in broad strokes here that it's going to diminish the diversity of um, black poetry out there encode their work with layers of meaning that are accessible to particular communities and so in that way they find ways to speak back to the settler gaze by taking away their access and understanding to the work as it's published. That's Gomorrah poet Alison Whittaker. We'll be hearing from her again later, but first, here's Lani Ook with her poem Finger on the Map. Finger on the Map. This is mine now. Flag on the hill, it's the Union Jack invading the red, the yellow and the black. That attempt on genocide, it never did subside. They're busy. Filling the minds of black and white with lies. Hey, you mob, let's recognise. 
fuck that shit, let's decolonize, let's reprogram our minds and realize that we're all still slaves. Slaves to a system that took the children away, raped the women as their men lay in pools of blood. Oh, no, wait. Hold up. Slaves to a system that takes our children away, rapes our women as our men sway by ropes. Powerful people, but we weren't ready. Ready for a king that lacked integrity, ready for sickness and guns and big cities, ready to battle a man that didn't fight hand-to-hand, but with poison and bullets and prisons? Fuck this system. Imperialism came by boat, then infiltrated our minds, arrived with the Bible, a forked tongue and a bottle of wine. There's no need to kill us when you're keeping us institutionalised. Now they're turning our suffering into dollar signs, turning our forest and our desert into uranium mines. Meanwhile, we're lowering our elders into early graves, leaning in to kiss the soft greys of their heads, only to turn around and bury our cousins next. Tonight we stand on the unrelinquished land of the Wurundjeri people, knowing every single day that their sovereignty was never ceded, and our resistance never fucking ended. That's the voice of Larakea, Kangarakan, and Gurdjie poet and memoirist Glaniuk. My name is Alice. I'm a poet, musician, zine maker, and PhD student in literature. I'm a proud descendant of the Palawa mob, the indigenous peoples of Tasmania. I first met Laniuk when she was facilitating a series of spoken word poetry workshops in 2019. And so I have started running workshops with Aboriginal people that are interested in poetry, interested in spoken word, um, would like to have a go or just want to learn some new skills in the hope that it will get more Aboriginal people up on stage, more voices up on stage. Because spoken word is such an incredible way, I think, of sharing a message. Poetry, definitely in general, but on the page, it doesn't have as much emotive drive, I think, as on the stage where you get to deliver it in the way that you want it to be received. And I think to have to share your message with emotion and clarity in three minutes, typically, you can get a lot across and you can hit an emotional nerve that I think is really required in bringing people to understand your perspective. And so I wanted to be able to share that skill with other Aboriginal people and to give them an opportunity to get up and share their their stories. And I held an event at the Koori Heritage Trust called Middle Fingers Up, which was really just aimed at the colony, and had a few people who attended those workshops get up on stage and, and share the work that they'd been writing either in the workshops or outside. I was at some of these workshops. They were held in a converted shipping container, painted all black on the inside, which doubled as a chalkboard. Under the large single window that ran across one of the narrow ends, there was a reading nook filled with books by black, indigenous and people of colour. There were cushions and bean bags just to chill out and read in, in the sun that streamed through. We gathered on a long metal picnic set in the middle of the room to talk, write and connect with each other. Laniak's connection to poetry runs deeper though. Her paternal grandmother and prominent elder in the Northern Territory, Moradub Cathy Mills, is also a poet and since the time of recording our interview, she's actually had her debut collection of poetry published. 
Laniox says they write from different times and places. So the opportunities for Aboriginal people in those times were so minimal. And my nana, being a poet herself, had very few opportunities to share that, that poetry. And I guess, again, you know, to be able to make money off her poetry and to survive off her poetry in the same way that I am, it wasn't possible. Larrakee mob are based in and around Darwin, which is where Lani Yuk and her nana are from. It was devastated by Cyclone Tracy over Christmas in 1974. When Cyclone Tracy hit Darwin, my auntie was helping my nana clean up the house and my nana was really frazzled and, you know, obviously, like, your whole house has been demolished, essentially, and, you know, all of your possessions are on the grass or uh, anywhere to be seen and you're wondering if people are alive. Thankfully, no one in my family died, but my auntie was helping my nana clean up and was picking up all of these pieces of paper and my nana was freaking out and was sort of like, you know, trying to pick up all of these papers. And my auntie was like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, like, are we throwing, are we getting rid of these papers or not? And when she looked at them, she realised it was all poetry and my nana was really distressed because all of the poetry was all over the yard and it was the first time that my auntie learnt that her mum was a poet. Whilst opportunities of publication were unavailable to the generation of Laniuk's nana, we're now seeing Aboriginal-owned and operated publishing houses providing meaningful opportunities for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander authors to have a platform for their work. One example is Broome-based Magabala Books. Listeners may be familiar with their most widely circulated publication, Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu. Another successful member of the Magabala family is Gomorrah poet Alison Whitaker, who was awarded the State Library of Queensland's Black and White Indigenous Writing Fellowship in 2015, and her debut collection to come from that, Lemons and the Chicken Wire, was published by Magabala Books in 2016. I'm Alison Whitaker. I'm a Gomorrah woman. I grew up on a little house in Connadilly Street, Canada, on the banks of the Namoy River. It's really exciting for me at the time of recording. It's about two weeks since the Namoy started flowing again after quite a long period of being a bit of a mudflat. So it's an exciting time to be a, a Gomorrah person from that particular place. Alison and I met right after she gets off a plane from Sydney and before she has to speak at a Queer Stories event later on. We have our yarn in a strange corporate meeting room in Docklands in Nam or Melbourne. In an unspoken way, I think we're both feeling a bit out of place here in our casual attire and big practical backpacks. I'm a, uh, I guess you'd say like a, a lawyer and a law researcher and a poet. What drew you into poetry as a practice to begin with and who were your influences when you were younger? Yeah, so I was really into listening to poetry when I was younger. It kind of started with, I think, the way that a, a lot of us from our generation get into poetry, hearing about Aboriginal poets in the curriculum, especially Udru Nunakul. I think I can recall, yeah, three different occasions at primary school and then a couple more in high school where that poem, Son of Mine, which was to her son, uh, Dennis, was read 
to us. And I think my understanding of it at the time wasn't full. And I think the part of the intergenerationality of Audrey and Nicole's work is that it'll grow with you and you'll get this growing appreciation. But when I was young, the idea that poetry could be used to convey things that were harder to describe than could be conveyed in the English language and that they could reach people and have such an effect on them was really profound for me. And then around the same time, maybe 2007, there was a subculture that developed where I lived of Aboriginal emos and I guess the cornerstone of the emo subculture was kind of around poetry and lyricism. And so maybe unsurprisingly, I was really into that. I think we would have got on well. Yeah, I think we would have. (laughs) (laughs) I first got into poetry practice when I was at uni. I went to... I didn't actually get into poetry classes. They didn't quite make the cut. But I just found myself, whenever I had leeway, coming back to poetry again and again. So that kind of launched, I guess, like a more systematic poetry practice on my behalf. In a way, it's kind of a bit of a profane way to get into Aboriginal poetry through market forces, but it also maybe demonstrates the market that had developed at the time, which some people have referred to as like the first person industrial complex, that it was just a matter of the right time and the right place that a book about my personal story as a queer Aboriginal woman was coming to the fore. After Lemons and the Chicken Wire, Alison began work on her second manuscript, Black Work, also published by Magabala, a collection that moves beyond the poet's internal lyricism and covers a broader range of subject matter relating to the wider Aboriginal community in this country at present. I asked Alison what she thinks Magabala contributes in the wider landscape of publishing in Australia which is mostly white, and what they represent in a more radical and political way. Mangabella is entirely governed by an Indigenous board. They have as their guiding principle that they're interested in the advancement and distribution of publishing that's in the interests of Indigenous peoples, which there's no other publisher that's kind of doing that, setting aside those commercial or market taste-based concerns and then centering instead culture, well-being, interest in innovation as um, their, their sole purpose. Only Magabala could put out books, I think, like Black Work, which is at its core just a really fucking weird book that would not have gotten published as it is anywhere else. And they've also published books like Dark Emu that are kind of bold and unafraid of advancing particular ideas that have a social change agenda. So they're radical in the sense that they've provided a platform that for effectively their whole lifetime as a publishing house very few other people have provided it's only recently that because of initiatives like black and right and magabala's relationship to them and relative recent success of a lot of magabala titles that i think the publishing industry has really begun to cotton on to the idea of more autonomous and culturally directed indigenous publishing 
A term that Alison and I have found useful when we think about and talk about Indigenous literature is called the settler gaze. In short, this is a way that non-Aboriginal people may look at Aboriginal people and kind of judge how well we're doing and being Aboriginal. This is obviously a problem as it has a subtle way of measuring and or erasing an expression of identity, whether that's through art or writing or even just being an Aboriginal person. Alison discusses a useful definition of settler first. Settler, I guess as it's contemporarily understood, uh, is a non-Indigenous person living on First Nations lands and country um, who is benefiting from the existence of the colony on that place. So it's sometimes used as like a a shorthand for non-Indigenous, which can be useful, but it's also a, a bit more complicated when we think about people who have come into being on this continent, being on First Nations lands, either involuntarily or under a really warped power relationship. So most obvious examples of these are refugees and asylum seekers who kind of come to the shores of this continent or who arrive otherwise in this continent, effectively forced from the place that they were before. Settler can be a useful term, I think, when it's very, very clear. When it gets more murky, I think we have space to kind of set it aside and understand a bit more complex and global relationship that we have as First Nations with other mob who have experienced colonisation and um, therefore have sought whatever kind of refuge on our countries. So what happens when settler people understand that they're settlers and are starting to understand their relationship to being on unceded Aboriginal land? There's a theory for this, and it's called settler moves to innocence, which means that while someone who can realise that they have a settler relationship to country and also be interested in activism that supports Aboriginal sovereignty they might still find themselves uncomfortable with the way that this might impact on their own sense of belonging and try to psychologically push back against those feelings of discomfort. Alison explains. Settler moves to innocence is a theory that was coined by Janet Mawinney and was popularised by Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang in their quite famous and exciting and wonderful article, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. And in that, Settler Moves to Innocence is a way of describing how uh, settler people are involved in social justice and decolonization movements as a way to to reach a conclusion with their relationship with Indigenous people uh, that resolves in such a way that makes them innocent. So they're interested in a decolonization movement that situates them really, really firmly in the colony and that doesn't always require them to give stuff up. It's about kind of finding a way for their comfort to be the centre of the movement. So that's really difficult because there's this tension in movement building where you want people to get on board because they have a relationship to the subject matter. It really matters for them. But it's not an easy sell to tell someone, you're going to be in this for life you're going to be complicit in a lot of horrible stuff and that's something you've got to reckon with and what you do is never going to reach a resolution, not in your lifetime and actually not really ever, such as the nature of decolonisation. It's an enduring relationship. Which now brings us to what we mentioned just before, the settler gaze. 
And the settler gaze is kind of um, interrelated with all these concepts, but it's the idea that settler structures, settler societies and settler storytellers have this idea of Indigenous peoples, of our country, of life on this continent that represents a particular suite of interests. And it's not always intentionally brought. It's just a set of values that are brought in storytelling or in reading of a story that represents settler interests. With these concepts in mind, can poetry be a tool of resistance against the settler gaze? As Alison mentioned before, there are ways that authors can style their writing by directly addressing a black community with certain linguistic signposts intended to speak to community. It's an imperfect tool, but it's a fun one. And it's one that is definitely being more carefully used. Kind of related to legibility is the reclamation of language through poetry. Um, I'm thinking of poetry in first languages and the work of uh, Lorna Munro and Curly Saunders doing that work. There's also just this playfulness around poetry that's getting more and more specific about its audience. This isn't actually always a positive thing and can be used in the reverse where language itself can be stolen and used to advance a settler agenda. An example Alison and I discussed were the Jindi Warabaks, who were an informal collective of white writers in the 1930s and 40s who tried to take Aboriginal languages to use for their own nationalist and identity-building purposes. This is a bit gross, to say the least, because Aboriginal people were persecuted harshly for the speaking of traditional languages, for most of the 20th century. You mentioned earlier the Jindy Warabaks, like some of their obsession was the idea of like taking these languages and developing a unique national identity with them. And so, yeah, like the, the tension is not lost on us that like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are innovating with the English language. And that has built a particular kind of cultural capital that other people want to cash in on, either for that settler moves to innocence thing, either for that um, settler melancholy. I love that term. It's going to always be an active game in a way between tightening and loosening the strictures of the English language to make meaning that's unique to our community amongst ourselves. And learning and writing in language is going to be one pathway that's kind of out of that in a sense but as long as it's within the strictures of the settler colony I think that meaning making is always going to be subject to a settler gaze that whether we like it or not may change what we want to do with it. Well I think that that's one of the good things about Magabala existing is because the the publishing industry is run by the settler gaze and it harkens back to what you just mentioned before of like the expectation of this quote-unquote embodied truth actually fitting in with the parameters of expectations as laid down by the settler gaze. Yeah, and that's the shit thing about the publishing industry is it's, for the most part, going to be driven by market concerns and market concerns are always going to be driven by audience and audience are always going to be driven by whatever makes them feel good and whatever they understand. And some might say, well, you know, there's plenty of Aboriginal literature that is successful that doesn't make settlers feel good. But it does in that roundabout way. They they get 
the challenge, then they assimilate the challenge into themselves. They find a way to reconcile themselves with it. And then they feel awakened and nothing changes. So, like, yeah, that's, um, yeah, definitely the harder thing about publishing full stop for Mob. To close out the episode, Alison reads a piece from Blackwork titled A Love Like Dorothea's. The structure and format of the poem is directly lifted from Dorothea McKellar's I Love a Sunburnt Country, making it equal parts lament and satire. A Love Like Dorothea's evokes many of the themes explored in this episode, such as responses to the settler gaze as it is imposed on traditional homelands. I love like Dorothy's. I loved a sunburnt country. Dislodged at a memory. I never lived in time to love a love like Dorothy's. We're cannibals of other kinds. This white woman has eaten the sky and where's that leave them girls like I? Lost creatures chewing over the night. Of our missing sunburnt country on which our prone feet land, yet onto which McKellar's gaze turns rivers into sand. It burns my eyes to turn to hers, my wide brown land out of like hands but traced in fetish verse. I love a sunburnt country. I loved a sunburnt country. I love white nativity that digs its roots and ticks to suck the floodplains to the sea, the love that swept those sweeping plains from them, pop mum and me. Cord in my heart, my country, beauty, terror, balm and bite, building, taking flesh, building furnace, taking flight, lavish and demanding, driving lapping cattle off while emu and kangaroo alike on highway going soft I could have loved them twisting grass fans grabbing moats with bubby hands like I loved this judied vastness that I am less and less than land I loved a sunburnt country won't it please come back to me won't it show me why my spirit wanders but is never free. I will soothe its burns with lotion. I will peel off its dead skin if it can tell me why I'm drifting ever further from my kin. I loved a sunburnt country. Won't it gingerly limp back? I can't get past the concrete and my black tongue's gone all slack. And I'm sorry, sweet McKellar, that it famished all your cows, paddocks, yellow thirsty, sudden green, no telling how. The gold hush rainy drum, hard to your violence and your plough. I love a sunburnt country. I love a sunburnt country that is mine, but not for me.
The Welcome podcast is based in Nam on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Nam is more commonly known as Melbourne, Australia. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Alice Billet, also in Nam. Script supervision and editing by James Milsom. Theme music composed by John Bartley. Special thanks to Laniuk and Alison Whitaker. We want to give a quick shout out to Laniuk's nana, Kathy Mills. Her work's been published. The collection is called Mokanaganak and you can purchase it directly through the publisher, Bachelor Institute Press. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Tilly Horton. If you liked this show and if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. It helps spread the word about the show and we really appreciate it.